When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everyone, welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. My name is Ton Dobbe and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I'm creating a tribe of tech entrepreneurs that are on a mission to do something big and meaningful. I invite you to join the tribe as well, especially if you want to create change that matters and put your software business on momentum that you're proud of. The goal that I have with this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest on my podcast today is Petri Letone, CEO of Flowtrace. I started a little bit differently than many other founders. I knew I'm becoming a founder. I knew I want to build something that B2B companies can leverage. I wanted to, to increase the communication and collaboration in startup tech industry. Next six months, I spent by talking with people who are in the same position as I am. I was trying to find a viable, feasible and valuable solution in these conversations. So I was basically designing my solution just by talking first half yeah. a year. Towards the end of those hundreds of calls and conversations I had, some people started to, at the end of the call, to ask, can I actually try your uh, solution? Yeah, obviously, it shocks you a little bit when it happens many times enough, you realize, I actually don't have any product. Maybe now is time I need to actually build it. This is Petri. He's a startup leader turned into an entrepreneur. He's what he calls a professional inter-team communicator. He's had significant exposure to strategic partnerships nurturing startup cultures and building cloud products. After 20 years of tackling the slow and manual processes of organizations and teams, Petri figured out there must be an easier, modern way of making work more transparent and avoid the recurrent pitfalls of teams not collaborating with each other. He realized that work is changing whether we like it or not, and the tools we're using are also part of that change. For a leader to understand their organization, new ways of overseeing are needed. The coronavirus pandemic of 2020 was the final push, as it made it even more pressing to solve the obstacles of collaboration remotely. And that became the founding idea behind Flowtrace in 2020. Flowtrace is on a mission to bring about the future of work for everyone. It's doing this by building a platform and focusing on the things that really matter in inter-team collaboration making modern work more meaningful. And that inspired me, and hence I invited Petri to my podcast. We explore what's broken when it comes to creating successful company cultures, and what are the consequences of failing. We discuss what culture creation really is all about, and how technology can play a fundamental role in amplifying the benefits in areas such as boosting productivity, creativity, quality, or innovation. Lastly, we dig into Petri's big lessons learned around creating product market fit and creating momentum through messaging. 
By listening to this podcast, you will learn four things. Firstly, that success starts with being specific. Being specific about the value that you create and who will benefit most from this value. Secondly, by selling the vision will help you grow momentum faster than selling features. Thirdly, that it is essential to get to product market fit fast and how to achieve that almost without coding a single line. And fourthly, that there is a big difference between what customers want and what you think they want and how to go about it by addressing the fundamentals. Hi, Petri. Hi, Ton. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Thank you for making the time today and being a guest on my podcast. Absolutely. Pleasure. Yeah, well, we, met, we met on Lunch Club, which is a platform that I can recommend to anybody. I mean, it helped me through the pandemic. And it's again another example of meeting great people and great spirits. So I'm looking forward to the call about your company because I think it's the big idea behind it is something that a lot of businesses need. But before we start and talk about the company, Flowtrace, first a little bit about yourself. I mean, how would you describe yourself if you would use two or three words as an entrepreneur or a person? People person, technologist and lifelong learner. I know it's not really three words, but those are quite descriptive instead of the words per se. Nice. And that's what I think I've, I've already sensed from meeting you first on Lunch Club. So yeah, what are you passionate about? What drives you? It really boils down to the people. It's already 10, 15 years ago when I really realized that what makes companies tick, it's the people. And I've always kind of looked about the environment I create for the people around me and allowing them to succeed. And this is really driving force for myself. Yeah, well, and that's actually, I think, a nice, not even intended kind of bridge to your big, big idea about Flowtrace. Just to get into that, what problem did you see in the market where you realized for yourself, hey, this is something that, that is screaming for something different? Yeah, it's obviously looking at the flow trace and my business, it's actually built up on my passion itself. And specifically, I've been working in the tech industry and first time founder environments the past 15 years. And I always felt that the organizational structure and the culture of collaboration is accidental instead of actually designed and really planned for. And this is really something that I, I want to be part of solving for everyone, really showing that you can take a holistic look when you grow your company and allow people to succeed in your business from the get-go. Yeah, this is interesting that you say that. Uh, first-time founders, of course, when you're first-time, you don't know, and I mean, you just evolve, and it goes from one to two to three to 30 to 300, and then culture is sort of an accidental thing. <laughs> but what is the problem then? I mean, what, what did you see that couldn't just continue i mean is it that these companies go broke earlier is it what is it so if we really look at the high growth tech startups and especially the leverage by the vc money this is usually tried to attribute a lot of the failures on external factors like no market need or product market fit but i want to kind of really take a problem of not arriving to this conclusion early on in the company journey. It's actually a collaboration and communication issue. When you get your team working on a problem space early on, they will identify there is no market need, they can pivot. Or if the product market fit is not there, again, if your team is actually working together on the same problem space, you will arrive to this conclusion early enough not to bust your company when it's too late. Yeah, true. And not to start finger pointing because you're not aligned on things. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, get, I agree. So the opportunity is that companies, yeah, possibly even get more resilient because of it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, in realistic terms, it's okay to try something and fail at it, but try to accelerate that learning. And now comes my <laughs> second point of my three points I shared. Faster you do your learning, the better it is for everyone. You know, try yeah. it out, fail, learn, go forward. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your solution. Who is it for? What is it for? Yeah. So some of my clients are really early on startups, starting from three, four people onwards. But where I really believe it's becoming valuable for the people who actually have a team structure. It's around the stage when you have 10, 15 people and you start to establish something more official than, hey, let's huddle around everybody together. And this is the point where you first time start to think about like culture. How do you define the processes? How the handovers are? And what I really do, I'm actually measuring the way where people are intentionally sharing information across the teams. And by visualizing and providing insights for the founders, the managers, and the team members, they can actually control the way and improve the ways they actually share information within the team. And this is really, it starts to kick in from the 15 employees onwards. But as, as we all know, we have been in a big corporate as well, where this communication is not as fluid as we all would hope so. So it scales from the bottom up, really starting from a small company to big corporates of the world. Yeah. I mean, what do you believe is kind of the essence to creating culture? Is that, is that communication in general or is, it, or is it more needed for that? Communication is a big part of it. But I think usually if, if you talk with the people teams or companies in general, they kind of feel that it's so, something really subjective and intangible. But for me, culture is also the way, how do you design the system? How do you get the work done? It's all about the tools that you decide to use. How do you actually do your policies? This is how we conduct our meetings. These are part of your culture and they are quite systematic thinking what you can apply there. And that's where my technology <laughs> comes in place and engineering, designing processes which are made for human beings. And how is the hardy? Yeah, that's an interesting one in itself. I mean, processes. Typically, of course, pre- pre- people are not, not, are not made for process. So I like the word that you say it's, yeah, it's human, humanized. So what is that? What is, defines the humanized part? So let's put it that way. If we drop the word process, because that's quite clinical, I agree. But think about just the handover. It's an agreement between two parties, two people, how they want to pass the work between themselves how more human you actually can go. And that's literally a prototype of a process when you do this agreement between two people. Yeah. And then you can start to think about all the things that, that need to go right in that particular area. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. You, 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 yeah. you can think about there, like if I hand this over with this medium, it goes to your backlog. It's in your email inbox, whatever the medium is. Again, not necessarily the most relevant, but it's also about when I hand this over, do I need to acknowledge that you have received it? When is the expected time that you can actually do the work? Do I need to chase you up? This is all about the handover and agreement between two people. And usually it's about the individuals who joined the team early on they define how these processes are. They never designed it. It's about the personalities. Yeah. What, is, what inspires me then or what, what triggers me to, to ask is like, how does that create a culture that's, that's a thriving culture? Because I mean, following process in the right way, yeah, I mean, things move. Yeah, uh, and especially early stage companies. You are in constant stream of reinventing yourself. 
what was true six months ago is not true right now. And especially when you double your headcount in a short period of time, you need to reinvent yourself, your handovers, your processes all the time. This is what I have learned. And something that can shed light on such a subjective matter is really helpful to allow your teams to actually define those things. Yeah. Yeah, I'm still I'm still puzzled with I mean, yeah, of course what culture means is different for every company. Some countries companies really want to get super structure in place and no one and they're really focused on quality possibly but other maybe you're maybe are more about you know the whole well creative and, and open and being transparent with each other and challenge each other these type of things so how does your does your solution kind of cope with all of these type of different yeah definitions of what good culture is all about yeah and i actually give full freedom for the company to define what those attributes are I am not claiming I'm defining your culture. I'm giving you the tools so you can build the culture you feel is right for your team. So I'm not basically prescriptive the way how you need to work. I'm giving you the tools that you can be sure that if you're more focused on the creativity, create enough headroom and space so people can be innovative. Again, if you're more in the reactive side, like a customer success, customer support, where you need to address certain customer issues as fast as possible, again, you can design the process there, which is highly different from the creative side. Yeah, that's true. So is this a tool that sits on top of all kind of enterprise solutions? I mean, talking about small companies growing up, but I mean, I come from the ERP world, enterprise resource planning. I've got people that I know that are in the CRM space, in the HR space, in procurement. Of course, all these systems are at some point in time needed in a business. But, you know, first of all, they're all silos. And I don't think that these systems create culture. I agree with you. And indeed, when you look at the growing tech startup, your Salesforce platform or your CRM in general, it is a form of an information silo. How often I have experienced that I didn't know we have a new client account coming or quote going out, which should have been captured a little bit earlier just to align it with the main vision of the product, for example. And this information, which you do not know where it sits, you just simply don't have access to it, nor you're aware of it, that it exists in the first place. And what Flowtrace does, we look everything holistically. We don't discriminate one tool over other. We want to provide you the information, how your team uses your tools. We don't need to try to invent the wheel between, you know, do you need to choose this tool over this tool? Yeah. If you look at it from a customer perspective, your customers working with your solution, what do you see is the difference between before Flowtrace, after Flowtrace? Or is that too short to answer already? Statistically not relevant answer, but with my beta clients, I have about 10 clients this far. What I have seen constantly happening with these client teams is they have actually focused time that they have available for their team increases about 30%. And this is just the fact that they, when they start to measure the way how they communicate and spend their days, they on purpose start to move into and appreciate that we need to also do the real work, not only talk and collaborate and talk about the work about the work, but they really shift the mentality. Let's maximize the time that we do the real work and let's minimize the so-called the shallow work, the low value work, bouncing around emails, forwarding emails. So kind of trying to minimize that shallow work. This is what I see client after client. That's nice. That's nice. And it's highly valuable. I mean, we are working on the business rather than in the business. Yeah. And make sure that, that, I mean, some of the companies I work with or have worked with, sometimes you see hierarchies that just, 
you know, they are there for no, for no reason. And it goes up and down and up and down. And, and what is really happening there? So, I mean, if that is an outcome of it, that's a cool one. So talking about this whole process of developing your solution, I'm always interested in what choices did you make in order to create something that's remarkable? This really, I think, what resonated really well in the Lunch Club call, what we had. I think I was kind of running through your book as a way how I developed my own idea. So first things first, I really looked who I am. What do I know? What the leverages I have? Unfair advantage. I also thought about what I'm really passionate about. And of course, the people side was all along on my journey. But I started a little bit differently than many other founders. I knew I'm becoming a founder. I knew I want to build something that B2B companies can leverage. I wanted to increase the communication and collaboration in startup tech industry. Next six months, I spent by talking with people who are in the same position as I am. I was trying to find a viable, feasible, and valuable solution in these conversations. So I was basically designing my solution just by talking first half yeah. a year. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's a very wise thing to do. And that's where testing is still very agile or very fast and also cheap because you haven't built anything yet. Yeah. And Every once you get that, it. like, I want to have something like this, can you build this? Then you're, you know you're on the, on the right track. This is exactly what happened. Towards the end of those hundreds of calls and conversations I had, some people started to, at the end of the call, to ask, can I actually try your uh, solution? Yeah, obviously, it shocks you a little bit when it happens many times enough, you realize... I actually don't have any product. Maybe now is time. I need to actually build it. Yeah, and that's true. That's literally what I did on pandemic year. And honestly, I think it's been the best possible year to found a business when you can really focus, double down on a business. And I'm, I'm hoping the return on that time investment will pay off dividends yeah. going forward. What in, always inspires me is when you're kind of starting with the design and you have to start with the blank sheet. Where do you decide to focus on? What are the elements that are really going to make the difference? And where do you say no to? So, yeah, saying no is powerful skill. And of course, as a solo founder, as I started, is the number one thing you need to do a lot of things. Obviously, you don't say no, you say not no. I started to actually leverage my own skill set prototype as fast as possible. I built a platform in a way that the ingestion, the data, that I have a solid foundation, which then allowed me rapidly to test out different visualization formats. So I have used a drag and drop tools just to test out the possibilities and literally worked with my clients, which I then brought in on board, really ironing out where the value relies and how do you derive the value doing iteration after iteration on every single type of a inside dashboard. And eventually I have arrived to a place where I have a platform, which I know exactly how the value levers are, when do they kick in and for what type of a client use case. Because what I have learned on this journey, the business models define quite significantly the way where the value is being derived. Let me make a small interruption here. Petri just made an excellent remark about how he's been able to arrive at building a platform that creates new value possibilities for each of his clients. First, by getting a deep understanding of what remarkable value would actually look like just by talking, and then by prototyping it, getting feedback, and iterating it from there. It's a trait remarkable software companies master. They leverage their endless curiosity to arrive at the essence of the problem and the change they seek to make and then they execute. And you can master these traits as well. I have various options for you to start. 
First, just go to valueinspiration.com to learn about the CEO masterminds and the Value Foundation workstreams to help you fast track the growth of your software business. Secondly, as you're there anyway, don't forget to grab a free Kindle version of my book, The Remarkable Effect. Back to the interview. And just by testing my beta clients who come from, a, from e-commerce to deep tech data to really just a consulting service company, I have started to shift my mentality that I only focus on SaaS product companies to get the really the product flying and then start to serve the other industries later on. Yeah. Okay. So why don't you particularly pick SaaS companies? I would assume it's a natural fit with my background. When I talk with a client, I can understand the every single pain they go through with two seconds or just yeah. a emotion that they express. I know exactly what they're going through because I've been working 20 years in a similar environment. So it gives me insight into their kind of thinking to a level that other industries not as easy to do for yeah. themselves. So I mean, yeah, it's what what's what inspired me is that you said that the business model drives where you read the value is really coming from. So can you give an example of that? Of, or one business model, for example, drive different requirements to your solution than the other? And, or, and how does it impact culture again and the impact that people can make? Yeah, so I can compare maybe the e-commerce example to SaaS example. So what I have realized that the e-commerce business, you can be really high value, high revenue generating business, you do still quite simple processes. You rinse and repeat and you copy paste these processes quite a bit. So the value of my product might kicking only five, six times bigger size than for somebody like SaaS business, who by default has multiple specialization functions and quite often even outsourced part of the development teams, partially sales team outsource. So the complexity of the organization, even in a standard SaaS product company is so much more at the headcount of 25 compared to a e-commerce company. Yeah. 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 I agree. I agree. That's a completely different ballgame. Yeah. And your solution will need to do will react differently to that in order to, to keep everything together and, and, and moving. Yeah. Nice. So, I mean, kind of have you from developing the product and, and having constant iterations with your customers, has anything popped up that, Became well, it was a surprise, but at the end also became something of, of real value to you. So I think it's the age old thing that your clients buy something else than actually what you offer. They realize down the line actually what they have bought. My clients seem to be buying into an idea of solving a pain they're experiencing right now. At the end of the day, it is the cultural transformation, what they actually get as a result yeah. out of it. I wouldn't be able to sell cultural transformation on a wider market. I can sell the pain points, what I can solve. And yeah, when they buy in, you get embedded into the internal workings of the client. And that's a great feeling when you really know you're making huge impact on your client employees. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting how people indeed think they buy this, but at the end of the year, they buy something else. And that's yeah, how they come to that realization and also what it actually does to your, to your whole go-to-market with that. Sometimes you think you sell the features or the functions of your system, which of course is what a lot of companies do. But at the end, that's not what customers are buying. They buy the, out- buy the outcome. They buy uh, the, re- yeah. How do you say it? The medicine for the pain. 
I would say that I have even since then shifted my thinking a little bit even further away from that one. Obviously, okay. I don't sell the features. I'm not necessarily anymore even selling the pain and the pill for your pain. I'm, I'm literally selling you the vision of the future that you want to buy in. And that seems to resonate quite well with my early adapters. Obviously, I'm so early on my journey. Maybe we see that this type of clients actually buy into the vision rather than the current state. Yeah, I mean, it's chapter number nine of my book. It's remarkable software companies sell the idea, not the product. And that's, yeah, that's, you know, that's that's all these little different outcomes that that you are solving and creating for them that turns them into something else. That's an interesting one if customers actually start to, copy you on that and say, well, this is, this is what's happening. Perfect. So what did you, I mean, talking about this, this whole learning curve and, and actually bringing it to market and starting to sell this, uh, of course, you're early, it's early stage still, but w- what did you learn in that process? I mean, was it a, a lot about education maybe? Was it a lot about kind of getting people to understand what it was really all about and why they were needing it in the first place or was it more straightforward? Super difficult question to answer for myself. This might be because of my background, because I've been working in so many companies, chasing the elusive product market fit and understanding what the pains of a growing company are. So for me, it's been way too straightforward process to get there. I don't have an explanation why it feels that way. But the amount of learning, obviously, what I have done on the way is significant. Don't take me wrong. This is first time when I have needed to be responsible of the execution of the detail in every single function of the business as well. Yeah. I've been involved and have a good oversight on all the aspects of the business before. However, I rarely have needed to go to the details. And uh, <laughs> again, I'm, I'm sure we all can agree the devil is in the details, right? Yeah. Can you give an example of that and whatever you... Where you, something felt simple, but it appealed to be super complex or the other way around. This might be about personal qualities and realization that I'm not a native English speaker. So for me to produce a outline, for example, a thought leadership piece, I know exactly how I want to communicate this to the market. But actually executing and writing that on detail, minute level, I felt like I'm writing academic papers and that's not something one you want to push in your social yeah, media true. post. So getting that language and tone right have been really difficult for myself from the get-go. And I have then since then decided to rely on the help externally for it. Okay. So you outsource it. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> well, I mean, that's a, that's a good thing to do. I mean, it's talking about the ability to start a business these days. You don't have to do all the things yourself anymore and you can very easily that's also what i realized myself and the people that i work with we often, we often think we have to do, do it all by ourselves but uh, um, that's not the case i would actually say you need to do it yourself first few times and i have really benefited doing this the whole production process on the content by myself however at the end of the day it comes to the point that a work that might take me eight hours, somebody else can do in a one hour. I need to be really careful the way where I prioritize my time consumption. Yeah, exactly. That is it. Like, like, like we started the discussion also around product development. You know, you can only, time is, is a scarce resource. You can only, you only have it once. You only have 24 hours. Yeah. Where, where do you spend it most wisely? Yeah, you've been in the, in the, in the business software space a long time. Now that you started your own software business, what do you believe is required to, in order to create something that people will start talking about, but also keep talking about? What are the lessons learned, either from previous or, or right now with your, with your own business? 
marketing is important and I believe in Europe marketing messaging is neglected, especially in a software space. Might be because we are so many lingual kind of groups, it's hard to create content in all the old languages. But I feel writing content have allowed me to sharpen the value proposition quite effectively and seeing really what resonates with the people who are actually coming to my website. And yeah. I think this is something what I have learned on the way. I had a hunch before I started and hence I put so much effort on the marketing, but this is definitely something I will take with myself and every single company I go, the marketing machine needs to be running because it's so cheap to test your ideas. <laughs> That's true. But the problem is also, of course, there's so much noise out there. So how do you stand out from that? And that is, that is the art. True. So, so what, True. Is, what is something that really works for you that you tried and tried and suddenly it was like, okay, now, it's, now it ticks? I think this is also like my number one, let's call it failure or again, I don't consider it as a failure. It's rather learning because I've been working with distributed teams past 15 years. So when the pandemic actually started, I expected the market to start seek for solution, which is all about employee engagement. However, what I learned then towards the end of the autumn last year is that, yes, people might be seeking information about that topic, but the value driver and what they were more concerned is actually the productivity and how to make their teams more productive. So I did shift my focus towards the end of the last year from a marketing messaging point of view, from the employee engagement to productivity, because I want to talk to everybody in the company, not only in this instance, HR, for example. True. Yeah. Yeah, and at the end, you know, if everybody's productivity goes up, you're doing a number of things the right way and people will see that for themselves and that will drive the engagement anyway. This is exactly like what, what we believe really strongly. It's all about the employee experience, my, my platform. And what I believe the great employee experience is when employees feel they are productive, they're doing the right things, they're well aligned. So it actually contributes to the vision of the company. This yields and gives you the benefits of high employee engagement, which itself drives, again, higher productivity, <laughs> which again drives the alignment. So it's a flywheel effect. Exactly. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, we always are very good. And I, I completely agree with you. I'm currently doing a project where I'm just kind of going through a number of those type of vendors in different disciplines. And the majority of them, I think I reviewed about 20 different vendors last week, and there was only one that really, that where I said, okay, I believe what you do, and I'm actually impressed with what you do. Tell me more, because we can go so high over and just keep throwing buzzwords at people. And yeah. employee engagement is one of them. So yeah, I have like I spoke to a lot of HR people and people, people like people operations people, and I started to think about. I haven't validated this one, but I have this hunch that when we focus on employee engagement only we are actually creating those foosball tables and the party nights and all these kind of fancy pants things. But those are actually addressing rather the symptoms. It is literally the way how we conduct our work that drives our engagement. Yes, foosball table is nice. Don't take me wrong. But if the fundamentals of the business are not right, the foosball table will not engage your employees. True. Yeah, exactly. It's the perks that <laughs> everybody tries to compete with that doesn't actually make a difference. No. People are actually prepared to kind of leave all of that behind, go down in, in salary to do something that actually gives them the energy. Yeah, and I mean, they yeah, feel they are contributing to something that they actually want to do. That's true. Completely agree. On this journey, 
Your own business is still a, is still a short journey. It's like a one, a good, more than a year. Is there anything that you say, okay, I, if I'd known this before, I would do it different next time? Let's say it this way. If I would have known I'm able to come up with this business idea, I would have started 10 years ago. That's a good one. Yeah, exactly. Because that's an interesting one in itself, like just start because so many people procrastinate or don't dare or they try to kind of wait until all the stars are aligned and so on. Yeah. Yeah. So what, uh, for, what, what was that idea for you or that, that moment where that spark fired up where you say, okay, now I'm going to do it? It's actually surprisingly philosophical and designed on my side. I have always known I've become an entrepreneur. Instead of jumping into entrepreneurship when I'm 25, I decided to actually do it in a way that I wanted to practice it on other companies. I mean, while actually earning a salary and de-risking it for myself. And hence, I've been working with high growth startup since my career start. And with these learnings, I've been always able to apply on my next role and the next role. Eventually, I come to a point, I'm coming to an end of my current executive role, and I really don't want to do it yet again for somebody else. 70% of the things that I have learned, I can apply directly to the next one. I felt yeah. I'm ready. I want to do it myself. I'm way better to do it right now. Great story. <laughs> A little bit egoistical, I need to admit, but well, that's yeah, how that's, I felt. That's good. So what are you most proud of that you have achieved so far? Because I mean, it's a, well, first of all, amazing that you already have, you know, you, you've got your customers there going already, got a platform that's built. A lot of things have happened in the last 12, 14 months. What are you most proud of? It is actually all that. As simple as it is. How can you come from an idea, bring it to a market, find clients who actually love working with you, they partner with you, they're ready to pay for it. And I did this all by myself. Okay, yeah, I just in the past few weeks, I've been starting to scale my team and actually take this to a bigger market and really building the foundation because I felt the idea is solid. Now it's time to take over the world. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting thing in itself. You know, it's like when do you kind of decide that the scaling moments are there? Any, any lessons learned there that is ready for a larger audience because it can also kick you back tremendously hard? <laughs> yeah, so I think maybe one of the learnings is I always thought about I'm building a business which is bottom-up, go-to-market strategy. And I relied always, obviously on my background on product, heavily on that side. And I think that moment started to come this spring when I felt I know exactly where that elusive product market fit is. I don't mean I know where it is or the product is delivering yet for that one, but I know exactly where it resides. And now it's time to start hunting it and really going after on a big, big, big way. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's always at that moment, you know, it's when is that moment and when do you know sure enough? And uh, yeah, I mean, it comes back with this old saying that no product succeeds until it hits the, the reality of a, of a real customer. <laughs> that's what you're doing. Constant yeah. learning in that, in that respect. Yeah. And for me, it was that moment when I realized that maybe the go-to-market strategy and my target customer is exactly that SaaS product business, high growth business. And when I felt, and when I can repeat this one, that's when I felt, okay, now I'm onto something. And that was for me the moment, okay, time to scale. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to say that you kind of niched it down. The question at the end is like, is the niche still big? Still, well, some people will say, is the niche big enough? Other people will say, is the, is the niche too broad still? So what's your perspective on that? Because will, for example, every SaaS business out there become, well, I have the potential to become advocate for your business. Yeah, it is still wide. I'm with you. And 
But I would also go to the point that every single business is unique. And, you know, my own business is the style where there is this pain going on. There are multi-founders who take the culture of collaboration into consideration from the get-go. And I think it is, as far as it is, yes, there are a lot of companies, thousands even in Europe itself. But I feel when it's already thousands, it's narrow enough. But next year, there is thousands more who actually start this journey. And yeah. so I believe there is the next thousand after that. Every single oh, yeah, that's, that's for sure. Now, it's always the interesting part about like, where do you, like, yeah, is it the whole story around the thousand fans or the hundred fans? You know, it starts with the first 10 and then they start to spread the message for you. Talking about marketing and then how that can actually become your flywheel. Like the best at the end is to do it through customers that speak for you. Yeah. Looking at the wider terms to market, I can share you so much that every single employee of the world who is knowledge worker space has the same issue and pain. So the total addressable market obviously is yeah. ridiculously big. Will my solution be able to cater and change the world on that level? That is, that is to be seen. Yeah, exactly. Start small and then prove everybody wrong. That's okay. Yeah. See, do it. I did it. So from the lessons that you've learned over your, your full career, what are the tidbits of wisdom where you would say, okay, this is it. I mean, if I had to advise other aspiring CEOs or peers in my group, what is it do and what is it don't that you keep close to you always and, and try to live? It's something that I have learned throughout my career. The first 10 years in your career as a generalist are really, really difficult, but that will pay it off. Get involved everything you can and learn whatever skill there is available, even if it's not shiny and bright and well-paid. Get involved, learn the skill, go forward and be generalist. It starts to pay the dividends about the 10 years in, in your career and it just gets amplified further you go. Wise advice. Because, I mean, how can you possibly be a specialist in the beginning or even want to be a specialist? You know, it's, yeah, and I agree with you. It's, it's also the path that I typically always followed, being a generalist. And I mean, it brought me in so many different situations. And at some point, it's like, okay, and this and this and this element form you. And that's where you get your specialist strength. Yeah. I like that one. A don't. Or is that kind of a combination or the opposite of it? It's exactly the same. Don't get stuck in the same, don't be the same cock, cock of the wheel in a company for 15 years. That, okay. that will yeah. not, <laughs> that, yeah. that's not a journey to become an entrepreneur, I would argue. Well, that's for sure. And I, I completely agree with you. So what is next? Like, where do you want to be in, let's say, 12 months, 16 months time or 18 months time? I want to be in a position that people recognize the category, what I'm creating here. Yes, it might be early stages, but I want to be known by a name in a niche market of my SaaS B2B companies. And it's a long journey. People will not. And quite frankly, the category is still in creation. So I don't know even what it's going to be called. My own contender is collaboration analytics. However, time and market will actually define how this market segment and the category will be called in future. But I want to be in a good way to be on that journey of category being formed. Nice one. Yeah. And I agree with you. I mean, when I, when I learned about it on Lunch Club, it was like, hey, I've never heard of this one. So this is definitely something that is new. And first of all, it's brave to start something like that. Because a lot of people, of course, and no pun intended, they start with something that's already there and they do it in a maybe slightly better way. And even better if they do it in a completely different way. 
you're starting something that I even couldn't recognize. <laughs> so let's see what Gardner is uh, talking about next year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's see if Gardner even Except, knows about it yet. <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see. And so where can people go to find out more about Floatrace or to say hi to you? So I would really love if you come and visit floatrace.co. That's my website. You will find our blog there where there is more writing about how I think the collaboration analytics space will become to be. You will learn there also a lot about how to really help your team to focus on the work in hand and segment the way how you spend your time. And of course, from LinkedIn, you can find me with my name, Petri Lehtonen. Very good. Well, thank you very much, Petri. It was an insightful call and I like the journey that you're on. The openness that you've yeah, provided in terms of what your key lessons learned are. I think there's some valuable lessons to learn from many, many people in the B2B software space. Thank you, Ton, so much for inviting me to this podcast. It was a pleasure. Thank you. And this ends my conversation with Petri. I hope you enjoyed it. And if so, please leave a review on iTunes. And if it inspired you, please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that you have in your network. Other than that, thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Petri Letonen, CEO of Flowtrace. As said, the goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. If you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that have a story worth sharing, please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. And if you want to know more about my book or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.